and humidity. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Rainbow Leung. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about mental health services for ethnic minorities. This comes as a new survey by Hong Kong Christian Service suggests that services are lacking in terms of cultural barriers, awareness on where to seek help, and time constraints. And Hong Kong Christian Service has teamed up with a Chinese university to launch a multilingual online platform to provide ethnic minorities better access to a range of mental health resources. And after 9.45 a.m., we're going to be talking about railway heritage preservation. Train spotters doesn't get any better. Call us now to be part of the conversation at 233-88266. One more time, 233-88266. Something new, you can also WhatsApp us on 6899-8518. And you can comment on our Facebook page or you can email us, backchat at rthk.hk. Getting into today's topic, we're going to talk to uh, Payal Biswas, the Senior Opportunity Fund Manager with Resolve Foundation. Good morning, Payal. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Nice we also Hey, great to have you on the show. Uh, we'd also like to welcome Shalini Matani, the founder of the Zubin Foundation. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. Uh, we also have Mike Chong, who is the service head of the Multicultural Rehabilitation and Community Service with Hong Kong Christian Service. Good morning, Mike. Mike, we got you? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. Great. Mike, why don't you tell us about your survey and what it tells us that we did not already know? Yeah. Uh, actually, the survey was conducted jointly by uh, Hong Kong Christian Surface, Chinese University of Hong Kong Department of Psychiatric, and the University of Hong Kong Department of Social Work and Social Administration. And the objective are to investigate the mental health status among South and Southeast Asian in Hong Kong and to explore the common mental health, health-seeking barriers faced by the epidemic groups. And it was conducted under a self-report online questionnaire and only investigated uh, anxiety, depression, and sleep issues among the respondents. Actually, our findings indicate that um, around 23% uh, of respondents were at high risk of depression around 12 and 13 percent uh, of respondents at high risk of insomnia and anxiety respectively. And overall, uh, nearly 30 percent were at high risk group for mental disorder. Yeah. And just to put that in context, um, I understand that the sample set for the survey was 273 people. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and, and just to, and, but, but there are over 600,000 ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. Yes. So, so that sample set of 273 is less than half a percent. So yeah. how reliable is this and do you think the results under or over report the actual situation? Uh, yes, uh, actually the respondent um, is uh, in total is 273. Um, I, I, we know that the, the population size will not be uh, too much but it is just uh, I think can um, give a picture to us that uh, how, how would it be uh, during during the last year from the January uh, to the August, during this period, how about their mental uh, status during this, that period? And just show some figure and picture to us. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had my friends in market research on. They could tell us if 273 was a statistic, statistic, statistically, mm-hmm. geez, I've got to work on that one, statistically significant uh, result. Uh, Shalini, you, you've got a lot of experience in this area helping people. Uh, what, what's your take on this, where we are in Hong Kong? Um, well, at the Zubin Foundation, we agree that 
mental health is a serious problem in the ethnic minority community. And um, the Hong Kong government is now working together with the Zubin Foundation, carrying out, and we carry out the Ethnic Minority Wellbeing Centre, which means that we offer one-to-one counselling to ethnic minorities who seek one-to-one counselling. And we offer that by professionals in English, Hindi, Urdu, and Nepali. Now, I want to go to this point about the severity. Um, So we've been conducting at the Ethnic Minority Wellbeing Centre one-to-one counselling since September 2019. And we have seen over 300 clients in this period and offered this service. And um, last year, our research, or Hong Kong News research, that used a randomised controlled trial of our work was published in the British Medical Journal. And amongst that cohort, and it was only 130, but it was an RCT, it was a randomised controlled trial, we found that there was a very alarming risk of suicide and self-harm. And so there are a lot of people who are suffering in silence. And we, I think the issue really is that the government recognises that there is a mental health problem in Hong Kong and that they are um, assisting the ethnic minority community in accessing mental health care. All right. And is there a lot of different, I mean, people use this term ethnic minority, but I suspect if you're you know, you're coming over here and you're, you're a, I don't know, a laborer from uh, Nepal or you are an, a banker who's been sent over here by Citibank and you're, you're from India. I mean, these are very different cases. I mean, how, how, do, we, how do we think about this? How do, I mean, people say ethnic minority and it kind of it paints it with all one color, but I suspect it's a lot of very different situations. How do we break it down a little bit? Well, I, I think that uh, when we look at the ethnic minority community of Hong Kong, we have to understand its context. Yes, anyone who is by definition, not Chinese, is an ethnic minority. But generally speaking, um, if you are a non-Cantonese speaker and you want to access services um, and you want to access English-speaking services, they are prohibitively expensive. But to use your example, if they are a banker, they may, they're probably going to be able to afford those private services. Whereas if, if they're not, um, and I would say the vast majority are not, uh, they are going to not be able to access that private service and they do need assistance in their mental health. So it's a really big step that the, the government is working with us to, uh, to address the mental health of the population. And I also don't want to put all ethnic minorities in the same bucket um, because, uh, you know, not all Chinese individuals are the same, not all ethnic minorities are the same, but also there are different sub-communities within the ethnic minority community, right? They're they're different ethnicities, they're they're different uh, people in different industries, they're students, and we typically support those who are 18 years and above. And actually, um, 52% of our clients are 18 to 30 years old. So young people are more likely to seek support. Um, just picking up on your point uh, um, that you made earlier about um, seeking help is expensive. And actually, that yeah. came out in the survey, too. I, I think almost 70, 70% yeah. of respondents said that seeking help was expensive. But, but my question is, is that true? Because I, I had thought um, that social services were providing, um, um, you know, the provision of this was either free or at low yes. cost. Yes, 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 actually. Um, this is uh, our concern is that um, the respondents showing that the common obstacle to seeking help reported by the ethnic minority were expensive, yes? Um, mm. 
Actually, um, you know, as, as you say, that the Hong Kong government and various organizations do provide affordable and or free of charge mental health support service for ethnic minority, uh, right? Um, and for example, the housing authority, uh, the hospital authority has psychiatric patient clinic, something like that. The, the problem is maybe there may be some misunderstanding about uh, uh, the uh, primary mental health among the ethnic minority. That will be that may be because of uh, they 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 cannot access the information from the public. That's why they have some misunderstanding. Oh, this is very expensive. We can't go. Uh, going to go to seek help, then they, their motivation to seek help then will be lower. Payal, yeah. within your, the communities that you deal with, I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you're dealing with, and, and do they have, do they know where to go? Do they, you yes. know, Mike, Mike has identified this as an issue, but Payal, uh, can you tell us about the communities you're working with? Do they get access? I think, uh, at Resolve, we think it's a much broader issue here. So uh, I would talk about a lot of disadvantaged groups, and these uh, findings are alarming but not surprising. And it can be equally applied to other communities. So mental health issues among marginalized groups really require the attention and support. And when we talk about affordability and subsidized services that are already available, so what about awareness about these? Because I think there is a lot of outreach and awareness that needs to happen, and also uh, the other point about them being accessible. So I think we can take several approaches, but I would say it's a much broader picture here. If we just look at the ethnic minority population, you have to look at migrant domestic workers and refugees and asylum seekers as well. So you have to look at the other groups as well. And, and I mean, how, how challenging is it for them? Like, when, where do, people, do people go to you first and say, I have a problem, you know, and, and are you the kind of the only point of contact that they have or do they have other contacts in the community? I think that, that is the other thing that I want to talk about is um, most of the frontline workers or maybe it can be from different organizations uh, like support centers, uh, they all, the frontline staff who actually doesn't talk about mental health, they should at least have a, uh, done a mental health first aid so that they can at least identify and signpost to, to these other organizations. I really uh, like that they have created a, a multilingual platform right now, so that's what I read about, and it's very, very new. But how do you make uh, people, these uh, marginalized groups, people from these groups, to access them or to do this? Because it's all about self-assessment and self-reporting. So surely there is a better way of identifying this by the front line who work not just on mental health, but maybe they're doing housing for them, maybe they're doing other kinds of services. So I think it's more about awareness in the front line staff. Right. Mike, uh, you're from, yeah. you, you worked on your survey with Chinese University of Hong Kong. They were on this show last week. People can, you know, if they want to go back and visit that show, uh, they can get it on iPod, iTunes, uh, Spotify. But we were talking about the CUHK's program to introduce a program for students where everybody was going to have to take a program on mental health. And that included a certain level of like mental health diagnosis of, of your friends and your peers so that you could see what was going on. Uh, is there an opportunity to do that? I mean, uh, uh, rather when somebody has a mental health issue, they have to hunt down the services. Um, if more people in the community were trained to kind of keep an eye on each other, like CUHK is doing with students? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, you know, um, the um, uh, CUHK uh, has uh, created an uh, online platform uh, this called Salamat, right? 
And this is a uh, mental health support uh, platform for ethnic minority and in collaborating with several organizations. And you would like to have um, objective to reach as more as needy uh, um, service user um, and, um, and more. And you know, it, it is a uh, multilingual online platform cater for special needs of ethnic minority, refugees, and migrant workers, as this uh, target group have often been overlooked uh, and underserved. And uh, they, they hope uh, that um, upon uh, the user, upon accessing the platform, they will uh, first complete an emotional well-being screening, after which they will review, uh, they will receive a personalized report on their overall well-being status, and then guidance on where to seek help and get some help uh, resources. And so we, they, I think, um, CUHK and Collaborate Partner would like to make use of this platform to reach out to more needy people, and and um, and they can get more help. Gotcha. Hey, we'd just like to remind our listeners that if uh, you can call us at 233-8266, if you've had experience in trying to access these services or not been able to find these services, or if you have a tip for people or you have a question, uh, don't be shy to get on the line. Rainbow. Uh, so, Mike, um, yeah. how do I uh, – has, has the online platform, has that, has that gone live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's gone live. Okay. So how, how do I find it? Yes, yeah, uh, actually – um, CHK and all the collaborative product is now uh, the platform is just uh, start yesterday, and mm. we are we are uh, going to have more promotion about this platform. We have uh, different uh, language leaflet and also with um, some uh, QR code, and we 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 would like to disseminate more to uh, reach out to more affected minority groups, and it is very uh, easy to use. Just the uh, um, user to uh, to access the platform, and they can answer the questionnaire, and then can, they can uh, uh, know their um, um, overall well-being status and seek help. Yeah. Rainbow, um, if I may, if there are yeah. individuals on listening in today and they feel that they need services in, in English, Hindi, Urdu, or Nepali, yeah. Yeah. Um, may I please urge them to, to seek help? And um, they can also just visit the Zubin Foundation website. I should have clarified that our service is completely free. Um, you could also get to us uh, via the platform that was just talked about by Mike. And if you complete that survey and, and you're offered help at the end of it, you can also take that you would like mental health assistance and we will we will receive um, your information then as well but if you feel you do need assistance please please do not suffer um, in silence please reach out and, and find help um, and I think there just to Pyle's point and Mike's point collaboration is really key here we all need to be working together and so uh, this platform is an example of you know one goes on they complete the survey if they are flagged for coming up with a high score and therefore potentially needing help, they will be um, follow-up. And, and that's really important. So us working together, working together with the media, uh, talks like this are really important because that's how we get the word out. We, we also have stalls in, in different districts in Hong Kong. We'll have them during the year. We're also working uh, with the religious institutions uh, the temples, the, um, the mosques, to get the word out. But, you know, we need all the help we can to, to reach as many people as possible. 
Uh, actually, yes, um, and there are some support surface uh, specifically uh, serving EM in Hong Kong now. Uh, for example, just like Ms. Salini um, um, said that they newly set up Ethic Maruti Wellbeing Centre, and Ethic Maruti uh, can also oppose support service centre for Ethic Maruti, and outreach train team for Ethic Maruti to seek help or get more information for mental wellness uh, surface. And for example, our agency is operating service uh, support center for ethnic minority and our training team for uh, ethnic minority. If service user with mental health problems seek for help, our social worker will conduct an intake assessment, provide counseling and support service. If their well-being status needs further help uh, from mental health profession or assessed as severe or um, moderate and high risk, we will make referral and bridging the service user to appropriate uh, helping profession or service center for follow-up. Okay. And also, we, we also provide mental wellness group and program, especially for women uh, from ethnic minority groups, uh, such as stress relief program, uh, um, emotional management workshop, uh, therapeutic group. Yeah. I've got an email here from Ilner, <clears throat> and Ilner, uh, it's quite a long one, so Ilner, I'd encourage you to put the uh, the full text of it on our Facebook page. I'm going to do a little editorial here. Uh, Ilner says, it's fantastic to have Shalini Matani as a guest on today's show. She is widely regarded as one of Hong Kong's most authoritative and respected voices on social issues with a particular focus on diversity and inclusion. Well, nothing but the best on back chat, right? Uh, he goes, uh, Ilner goes on to say, uh, Ilner attended the SCMP's DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Summit 2024, and he was glad to see the government NGOs and private sector focused on that. Uh, he's also happy to see the new website from Christian Service and CUHK. Uh, hopes it is user-friendly, culturally sensitive, and tailored to address the specific needs of the communities. And then uh -huh. he has three suggestions. Uh, more campaigns, culturally competent mental health service and professionals, and hopes that we can address financial barriers and time constraints through subsidized or affordable mental health services. Um, one of the things about this is I feel like I see talk about this all the time. I mean, maybe because we talk about it on back chat and I'm switched on to the political scene. But I mean, how do you put your head, put, how do you put yourselves into the head of somebody who might have a mental health issue and is not swimming in this kind of news all the time like, like, like people on this show are? How do, you, how do you get into their heads and think like they do to, re, to connect with them? experience at the Zubin Foundation has been to integrate mental health into everything we do. So, for example, we give financial scholarships. Uh, that's one of our projects to young women and young men to go to university in Hong Kong. And we have an independent scholarship committee. Now, everyone who receives the scholarship, and last year we gave 45, um, we ask that they complete a... Um, a mental health form after they've received the scholarship and, and that is really to support them because we want them to be the best they can possibly be. Those who come to us for our support groups, we have support groups for, for women victims of domestic violence, for mothers with special needs, children, we have various support groups. Again, we administer a quick assessment and if it comes up and if they come up with a high score, we tell them that there is assistance available. So we try and integrate mental health into all our projects because um, we know that the intersectionality of being a minority comes with a number of 
um, difficult situations, including discrimination, but often in Hong Kong it comes with poverty, and that comes with sometimes lack of food, it comes with small homes, and then there's the cultural aspect, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of our, our young people feel um, torn between the culture of Hong Kong and the culture sometimes that their parents and grandparents want them to feel part of, and then there's also intergeneration issues. So. Um, Sometimes you're right, Andrew. We need to get in their heads, and the way we try to is through integrating mental health into the work we do. Okay. And I agree. You need to take a more holistic approach to this. And it's not only just about curing diseases or ailments, it's about social well being and quality of life. In 2022, uh, Resolve had the fellowship theme of well being reimagined, where we really recognized the importance and urgency of inclusive and accessible health for all. And uh, we brought together 20 emerging social impact leaders. And uh, right now they are in the field. They are doing uh, community projects. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we have supported through our Innovative Opportunity Fund, which is a small seed grant, five projects on racial equality, three projects on health and well-being. So this is the way I think, you know, you... Uh, go do more outreach and create more awareness in the community and not wait till, you know, uh, somebody has an issue which escalates and then try to look for resources because that's, that's quite too late. I mean, what what I'm thinking is, um, in my head, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink. So, um, and I suppose the point I'm I'm trying to get here at is the, I know part of the survey, there were 56% of people said that they were put off getting help because of the cultural language barrier. So so I I suppose my question is this, is there now, is Hong Kong better at this? Are, are, you know, medical practitioners better at this? I would say um, rainbow... That is exactly why we exist, mm. um, to provide provisions in, in, lan- in the language. And I do not think in the provision of mental health care, translation services do the trick, because these are deep-rooted issues. They may be violence, they may be intergenerational trauma, and to you go back to your native language and you are talking about your deepest and darkest fears, and emotions and you have to do it in your own language. And the provider of the service needs to be able to understand that. So language and culture is really important. One of the things I think Hong Kong needs to do much better is provide all healthcare provision uh, practitioners with diversity training so that they understand the types of issues that young men and young women in the ethnic minority community may present with. Now, this sort of training is happens in other countries where their community isn't homogenous and there are diversity of religions and, and races, but we, we have yet to have this in Hong Kong where health practitioners are being taught about the different populations. So we do need that, and we are just starting. Yes, I, I agree that the key problem is about the accessibility. That's just like our research finding that revealed that around... 40% of the FMRI did not know where to seek help when facing mental health problem, And it should, we should have to uh, increase the accessibility of med, uh, mental health service to FMRI, the government and also all the service providers to proactively reach out and strengthen the dissemination of information about the support health service to FMRI community, promote and provide uh, mental health service in multi-language 
multi-language, especially with EM language, as some of the uh, ethnic minority may not be full proficient in English, and to ensure language barrier do not prevent individuals from seeking help or receiving help. And another thing, thing is uh, we have to encourage diversity in mental health workforce in community-based mental health service centre. Service pro, uh, operator can consider to recruit frontline staff from multicultural background. Having uh, ethnic minority mental health frontline staff who share the same language uh, culture and life experience with ethnic minority users can effectively communicate with them, better understand, standing, and help build trust, mm. and even motivate <clears throat> the user to seek help. That's, that's great. Well, Michael, that's a, that's a powerful message to finish with today. Thank you very much. This is uh, Mike Chung, is the Service Head of Multicultural Rehabilitation and Community Service with the Hong Kong Christian Service. We were also joined today by Shalini Matani, the founder of the Zubin Foundation, and Payal Bizwaz, the Senior Opportunity Fund Manager from the Resolve Foundation. And I will encourage our producer to put uh, links to those organizations on our uh, Facebook page uh, so people can check them out if they would like to get on that. Quick hit on the weather. Sunny periods, coastal mist in the morning. Coastal mist sounds very romantic. Uh, warm in the afternoon with maximum temperature from 25 degrees. Is winter over? Uh, right now, 22 degrees Celsius, 87% humidity here in Hong Kong. Back chat. Uh. It's 9.30 and now the news with Martin Holmes. A restaurant boss has rejected suggestions that new labour rules will put too much of a burden on the sector. Under the changes announced yesterday, workers will be treated as continuous employees and receive benefits if they work for a total of 68 hours over four weeks instead of 18 hours a week for four weeks. Hong Kong's football fans are gearing up for the arrival today of superstar Lionel Messi and his Inter-Miami team. A delegation of officials is expected to greet the team at the airport on their arrival from Saudi Arabia, where they lost 6-0 in a friendly overnight. And the, Jewish, uh, sorry, and the United States has imposed sanctions on some Jewish settlers who've carried out violence against Palestinian civilians in the occupied West Bank. President Biden signed an executive order targeting four people who will have their assets in the United States blocked. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It would be unimaginable if we ran out of water. You couldn't play with water under the sun. You couldn't cook your favorite food. You would not be able to do anything without water. Did you know that on average, each person in Hong Kong uses 150 one-liter bottles of water per day? A water shortage might be closer than you think. Remember to use water wisely. The Water Supplies Department reminds you, save water today for a sustainable future. The new law to regulate tenancies of subdivided units is now in force. Each regulated tenancy is for two years. The tenant is entitled to renew the tenancy once. The rate of rent increase on renewal must not exceed the rate of change of the relevant rental index of the Rating and Valuation Department and is capped at 10%. The landlord cannot charge non-permitted expenses and must submit a notice of tenancy. For inquiries, please call 2150-8303. Back on Back Chat, I'm Andrew Work here with Rainbow Lung, and we are talking about uh, the access to mental health services for ethnic minorities in Hong Kong. Uh, we had three guests in the first part of the show, and we are spicing it up with two new guests joining us for the second part, uh, starting with Rizwan Ulla, the Kowloon City District Councillor. Hello, Rizwan. Hello, hi. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Great to have you back on the show. We also welcome uh, today Innocent Matanga, who is the founder and director of the Africa Centre Hong Kong. Good morning, Innocent. 
Hello, good morning. Glad well, to be here. Great to have you on the show. Uh, you deal with very different constituencies, uh, Rizwan and Innocent. Innocent, maybe we'll let you uh, kick off first. I mean, I mean, in Hong Kong, when people think of ethnic minorities, they think Indian, Filipino, um, Indonesian, uh, Nepalese. But you're dealing with a whole different, uh, a whole different community. Can you tell us what the challenges are for people that you're dealing with at the Africa Center? Yeah, uh, th- thanks a lot. I think when it comes to the African community. You know, you know, I would like to think of like a minority within a minority group. Um, yes, I mean, the challenges that have been discussed earlier on access and, uh, um, you know, are, are real. But I feel like uh, there is more to it. Like, you know, it's, 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 what it was not discussed, which is basically, you know, what causes these kind of, you know, mental health issues within the community, you know. Because I feel like the previous conversation put the burden so much on the minorities themselves, like they need to find access, they need to find more information, but it doesn't really, uh, you know, touch on the elephant in the room, which is the society, right? Like, you know, microaggression or forms of discrimination that people face on a daily basis as the really fundamental reason why people end up uh, in these particular uh, conditions. So, uh, I mean, I'll touch on that later as well, more on that as well. Okay. Uh, Rizwan, you've, you've got to, you've got to do, as I said, you've both got different constituencies. Um, I know your work with young people as, as an educator, um, but are you dealing with, are you, are you looking at this more as an educator today or as, or as a district counselor? <laughs> well, I'm looking at it from, uh, uh, from a macro level of, uh, you know, uh, the ethnic minority issues as a district counselor, you know, like uh, uh, I actually deal with uh, people of uh, all uh, age groups. So I'm looking at uh, that perspective. You know, uh, when we talk about the uh, mental health problems, there is that there itself is a spectrum of uh, intervention. So we look at whether, you know, at preventive level, what we can do, at early intervention, what we can do, at treatment level, what are the things that we can do so that a person uh, from, uh, like, who is well, who is having some problems until becoming unwell or unwell or even recovering, like, these are different faces uh, where different types of support or assistance uh, is required and whether uh, these groups are catered for. So I'm looking at rather at this angle, not only at young people, because I think mental health problems don't, don't discriminate. They look, uh, they look at different age groups and different age groups have different problems. Yeah. And I mean, so, but do people go to district council and expect to get some kind of help? I mean, I don't imagine that district councils have budget for this sort of thing. I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly limited. Well, I think it's like this, uh, as a district councillor, like you would have cases coming to you yeah. and you look at the site. So there might be some families with uh, mental health problems and you'll classify it under uh, medical. And then we look at, uh, like, let's say in Calvin City, then we'll look at the, uh, 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 find a re- re- uh, refer the case to relevant medical practitioners, or even use our own uh, network uh, to make uh, recommendations to them, and ask them. You can seek support here and provide them the information. Like l- luckily enough, uh, I had the mental first uh, ADA certification. So at least my uh, like the training that I have is when a case comes to me for for this, I know at what level they are and so what sort of support or referral I can give so that they can have early intervention or they can go and get treatment at, or give them the information. The information gap is quite serious. You know, like as you look at, I mean, the study, I, I, while I glance through the study and I look at this topic before as well, I mean, uh, the mental health issue itself is a taboo. Like, I mean, you know, many of these males within our community, they would not regard this 
or they feel too ashamed to bring up this topic and they might have hesitation. So as counselors, when we have faced individuals like this, we have to tell them it's normal, it's okay to have this problem. And now let's face it, and these are the supports, and you have to go through this and give them, you know, this process so that they, you know, they are empowered to share the problem rather than intensifying the problem and going through the vicious cycle again and again. I, I totally agree that having the right support network is 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 very very important. But innocent uh, Mutanga made a point earlier about um, uh, the causes. You know that we that that he believes that we have to address the underlying causes. So they're innocent. Can, can you elaborate on that further? So yeah, underlying. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, um, innocent. Okay, uh, the, right. yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So. Um, you know, some of the underlying causes, like, let me give an example. On a given day, you know, if you are black or sometimes brown too, like, you know, you experience forms of migration in the double digits, you know. It's from the MTR you get in, people pinch their nose, people run away from you, you know. You get on the toilets, you know, even the toilets, right, you know, people avoid to use the same cubicles that you are using, you know, uh, and you see these things. So, in a more, I feel like the solutions that have been suggested earlier, or the conversation that was discussed earlier was a lot more about addressing some of these in a very tactical way. Like, okay, the issue has happened. Let's address the wounds, right? Um, but not really looking into, like, okay, what is the society like? This burden is not just on the ethnic minority. If anything, the bigger burden is on the, uh, the, the majority group, which is basically the Chinese in this context. You know, like, how can we actually address those? That's why when we usually, you know, try to do, like, let's say, cultural diversity, uh, workshops, you know, different things. Try to, to address and bring out, you know, how the society can be a bit more better and inclusive. You know, so I feel like at least the the conversation, the the way the, the research was put in place, come from an example that I experienced when I was sharing in a school. You know, I told them these students about like, look, for me to get a house to rent, it's so it's so difficult. You know, unless I put a, a white person's picture on my on my WhatsApp, that's when the landlord or the agencies are gonna be able to uh, to accept. You know, or if they accepted me as a black person, they're going to ask me to they charge me 12 months uh, uh, deposit, you know, which is totally ridiculous. So, so, so uh, the proposal, just one, one more minute. So the proposal that was given to me by these kids, which I think reflects the society, was that, oh, why don't you paint yourself white? Then you can be able to, to, know, to, to, to access the service. These are little kids, but to me, it showed me that it's representative of the society as a whole, you know, where inclusion is not really a thing. It's like, you no, know, for you to be able to make it here, you need to be like us, you know. You need to change and be like us, you know, which is, again, the same problematic uh, aspect I saw in the, in, the, in the presentation earlier, that, like, we need to, uh, to have the minorities be able to be the one to take the burden and not the society itself. So that's, uh, that's my elaboration for now on that one. Okay, we've got an email here from Bowen. Uh, Bowen says some of the obstacles to getting help cited in the survey really stem from a fear of stepping into unknown territory. Apart from language barriers, which are real, the four obstacles, not knowing where to get help, stigma, Finance and busy schedules regularly appear in territory-wide surveys. Uh, Bowen says this is not helped by medics' inadequate explanations and their apparent lack of awareness that they can do more for patients, for example, informing patients of the different stages of progress in a case of, say, depression, not knowing how these things can lead to despair, as highlighted in the suicides of celebrities. Uh, thank you, Bowen. Just a reminder, you can also call in at 233-88-266. Um, Rizwan, where is, you know, where, where do you see the biggest... Uh, 
where the biggest gains can be made, whether it's in terms of public policy or through NGOs in Hong Kong, if there's one thing that you could see that would really make a difference in uh, helping well, ethnic minorities get access to mental health, what would that one thing be? Well, thank you. This is actually a very important, a very uh, good and valid question. You know, like, uh, to my understanding, there are at least 26 ICCMW, like the, those uh, Integrated Community Center for Mental Wellness, and, you know, like in these ICCMWs, they have services like, you know, drop-in services. They might have things like outreaching services, casework counseling, network services. They have an array of things that they have. So the key thing is, you know, how we can see like these ICCMWs can, you know, uh, looking at their service and do some adjustment that they can cater for the needs of the uh, ethnic minority, whether it's Pakistani, Indians or African brothers. Because uh, I think once they have those cultural responsiveness or cultural accommodation within these uh, uh, community uh, mental wellness centers, uh, I, I think people will, will seek help. That's the first thing. Second thing is how, you know, these cases or people in need are referred to these places. And number three, which is also very important, is within our community. Like, you know, mental health issue is not only for people who have mental health problems. Like, all of us will have mental, mental health issues, like whether it's big or small only. Sometimes if you're too stressed or less stressed, you know, uh, how, these, how the people accept this as something normal rather than something abnormal. So if you look at it from that positive angle, you can actually, you know, provide that lot, uh, level of advice to your, your loved one or your friend so they know where to go. And when the people know where to go, this is already a big step. A second step is how the places that are offering these services can cater for the needs. Then this will make changes. So this is how I look at, I mean, if we want to see some breakthrough or changes, uh, because there are resources, it's just that it needs to be reshaped a little bit and also uh, people accepting, you know, mental health as uh, mental health is something very important and accepting it is normal if people have these issues. It's not something like these people are, uh, uh, should be taken away and should be uh, hide under the carpet and stuff like that. Mm, okay. Innocent, what was your, if, you, if you had the number one thing that you could see that would help uh, people in your community to get access to mental health services when they need it, what, what would that one thing be? If you, could pick, if you had to prioritize and pick one, the most important, what would that be? Innocent? We might have lost Innocent. No okay, problem. Um, oh, he's back. Yeah, okay. There we yeah, go. yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm not really being engaged in this particular conversation. Uh, but anyway, I'll answer. Um, for me, as I said, like, w you know, we can keep talking about this. That thing, like, okay, you know, what is that? What could you do? You know, but the, the fundamental issue is left and, and discussed, right? But, uh, you know, to answer your, your question, I mean, I don't think... It's uh, largely you know, language. It's the same thing. Uh, but again, how do you make this place more inclusive? You know, that, that's basically what, what this is all about for us. You know, but I, I, from my conversation so far, but nobody's really engaging with what I'm saying. So, you know, so it's a bit harder to have this conversation. You know, unless maybe you engage some of the points I'm also putting up, you know, then it'll be easier for me to actually have this conversation further. Right. OK. So, OK. So what's, if, if we're missing something, what's the number one thing that we're missing? That this, you know, this is not, uh, you know, both, there's nothing new about knowing that minorities 
there are issues with languages and barriers and stuff like that, right? Sure. You know, what we're trying to address, to bring up here, is that the place is not as inclusive. A kid goes to school, you know, the space doesn't feel it's theirs. Despite their fathers and parents paying taxes, if they open their food, and their food is African food or Indian food, they feel uncomfortable to be judged by the other colleagues, the classmates, or even a workplace. You know, what would a person who is experiencing that 20 times in a day, all those kind of forms of microaggression, you know, where would they end it uh, in the end? You know, where would they end it? So if you talk about anything that needs to be addressed, which is sustainable, strategic, and long-term, it's really looking into, like, how do we make this society more inclusive, you know, which makes people feel like they can bring themselves wholly with their cultural background uh, into their, you know, into their, into their workplace, their schools, into the public transportation, right? But that's really what the fundamental problem is here. Um, yes, those things on intervention, when a person has had these issues, those are problems that are shared by everybody, you know, including people from the dominant group as well. So, um, you know, so that's been my point, uh, which has not really been uh, engaged, to be honest. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, so you're so you're calling for a broader shift in societal norms. Uh, I mean, you think people here would get it? I mean, you quite often hear these stories about kids uh, showing up with a lunch that's different from everybody else. You know, I've I've always heard that story in the context of Korean and Chinese kids showing up in North America uh, and having yeah. that exact same experience. Yeah. So, so th- those 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 are things. So, how do we make a society better? You know, because you have to think about using less resources to be able to achieve a much more higher impact, you know. Uh, but you can understand the people who go for, for intervention at the doctor's level, social worker's level, it's a very, very small group of people. You know, a lot of people don't go out there and, uh, and, and, and say that they have these issues. You know, so that's why we say we need more cultural uh, diversity training. We need more cultural uh, exposure to the dominant group, you know, which is what we try to do even at the Africa Center. We go into schools, we do all these programs, and then so that we make this place much safer. Instead of focusing on trying to fix the victim, you know, that, mm. that's my problem with the entire narrative. They're trying to fix the victim. You victim, you need to do this. You need to, 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 to realize this is not true. There are cheaper accesses to resources. You know, I, I don't think that should be the focus. Mm. I can tell you a lot of people do know this, uh, this access to these things. We don't go because we feel like they don't understand us, right? Yeah. You know, going back to the point that I agreed on, which was uh, on that research, was that the, 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 uh, the service provider needs to have more cultural diversity training. That I agreed on because that's one of the things that people actually don't go to. You go there, you know, you feel like they don't understand. They cannot engage. I mean, you are, you are, you are being given a social worker who has no idea what you are talking about, who doesn't understand your pain. Who does. so, it, so it doesn't help. A lot of people just complain. It's a total waste of uh, uh, my time to go to those places, right? Yeah. So that's why I feel like the, that cultural diversity exposure, whether uh, in society level as well as at the... Uh, uh, service providers uh, level is what really should be the focus. All right. Well, there we go. There you have it from Innocent Matanga, who's the founder and director of the Africa Center Hong, uh, Hong Kong. Thanks for coming on the show. And also Rizwan Ula, the Kowloon City District Council. Thank you to both of you for joining us today. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, and like the man says, you can call us one more time. That number is 233-88266. In particular, if you've got something you want to say about trains, because that's what we are talking now. Dennis Ho is the founder of Peanut Creations, an interest group that documents Hong Kong's railway history. Good morning, Dennis. 
Good morning. Hey, so Dennis, I know uh, we saw like when new MTR lines open, people get out there and they're, they're excited to be the first ones on the new train. And, and <laughs> yeah. so we've, we've got some people really yeah. passionate about trains in this town. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what, what you guys are focused on? Sure. So unlike those train enthusiasts that you mentioned, actually, we're quite a bit different. So not only we share railway news, but we also conduct researches regarding railway history. So there's always some history that is unknown to the public. So we're trying to see what is unknown and what is so special about those history. And of course, I do things about preservation. So I liaise with MTR and Railway Museum to ensure quality conservation, because that is not so easy to the public and, of course, to railway enthusiasts. Okay, and when you say trains, are you talking about uh, like MTR style trains? Are they included in that, or do you mean, uh, I guess you would say train trains? I mean, I don't conventional know. Conventional trains. Conventional <laughs> trains, standard trains. How do you differ? Do you yeah, differentiate usually about the MTRs? Okay, usually so MTR. But of course, we do researches, or we are interested in railways overseas as well. Okay, very good. And and what do you? What, how does this work in the context of Hong Kong? With Hong Kong, so well the the railway history, the development of it is so closely um, related to the development of the city as well. So when we look into the history of it, not only we look into the the history of the train itself, but also the railway lines and how it's developed, and then how the city was developed as well. And this goes all the way back over a hundred years, right? Since the what with peak yep. tram in eighteen eighty eight, and thereafter. Yep. So so what's the evolution of trains in Hong Kong? Anything special that you can Tell us about. Well, for me, I don't see there's anything very special uh, regarding peak trams because I don't do a lot of research into it. But mm. then talking about like the old trains and the East Road line was really special because like back in 1910, it was just a very rural railway line trying to connect Hong Kong to Canton. But then uh, since 1980s, it has gone into a very large-scale development, so from a rural railway line to suburban railway line, and eventually now, like in 2020s, like it it has become like a commuter railway line, just becomes like a, a metro train instead of like the 100 years ago, it was just a very rural old train. And the trains back in 1910, were they steam? I mean, I'm totally yeah. ignorant. So they were, yeah. they were, oh. And, uh, well, no, yeah. I've never been to the museum up in Taipo. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is that is that a place people should go if they want to get the lowdown on Hong Kong's railway history? Yeah, it, it gives a very brief history of Hong Kong's railway, especially on the KCR side, which is now the, the East Rail. So it shows the uh, train carriages where people once travel on uh, from Hong Kong to, to Lowu back in the 1910s or before the uh, electric era. And then mostly about the KCRs over there, but at least it gives you a very brief idea of Hong Kong's railway in the past. Right. Why does it matter? Why, I mean, why does railway history matter? Why should, uh, you know, outside of uh, train spotters or people that, you know, just have a particular thing for it, why, why should the broader community care about the history of railway in Hong Kong? I think it's a very uh, interesting way to see the history or development of Hong Kong because, like, the carriages there, like, it isn't really like what you will be seeing in Hong Kong now. It's just a metro train. But then there, the, the carriages in the museum was actually like the, the, the carriages hold by locomotives, which is like you, you, you never see it now. So mm -hmm. I think it shows how different the city uh, develops or works from the past to uh, the present Hong Kong. Right. And, and, and Dennis, are you aware? I, I mean, I read recently about um, the, is it the KCR... Uh, KCR East Rail trains being reused 
um, being retired and then be re- yeah. given given a second lease of life. Uh, can, can you tell us anything about that? Because so I heard two, that they, um, I heard that they were being given to schools and and schools are using them to educate yeah. the children. There, a few of them are donated to schools, and then some, like, like you know, there are two just display in Wan Chai waterfront. So these are known as the upcycling projects. Or oh, I do, I do appreciate it, uh, the one in Wan Chai, because I think it strikes a balance between conserving the history of the train, and also creating a new kind of public space to enjoy. So it's not like only a park or just an open space, but then it it somehow manages to put a train there and people just enjoy there. So it's quite interesting to see how MTR decides to uh, do the upcycling in this way. Yeah, I just discovered that train on the waterfront a little while ago. Have you seen it, Rainbow? I've not seen yep. it. Where, where on earth it's is like, it? It's, it's you a can't bit miss of, it. You can't really like drive up to it. You've got to walk out to it because it's kind of in a bit of a reclaimed waterfront, just a little bit east of the convention center. It's kind of neat. I have to admit, the first thing I thought was, wow, could I get a DJ and you know, <laughs> have a cocktail, throw a party in here? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so so with pe- within people in the how how big is the uh, train enthusiast community? I mean, probably the only exposure a lot of people have had to train enthusiasts is the Scottish movie Train Spotting, which maybe didn't show them in the best light. Um, <laughs> Dennis, how big is the community in Hong Kong? Well, it's, I think it's hard to to say how big it is, but at least from my page, I have a few thousand followers, and then the wow. largest page, as I know, has like a thirty thousand. Uh, uh, followers, I guess it's around like talking about it. I think it's uh, I think it's around a few thousand or ten thousand. I guess. Oh, but really? then, oh, those you see is only uh, on the the opening of May night and those who got shown on TV. But then, of course, a lot of it just don't get exposed to the media. Right. And and for these for this community, if if they are looking at train history, um, are they able to make recommendations or tell us about what should be happening in our train future in Hong Kong? Uh, do they weigh in on, you know, do they, do they have any kind of a, a rapport or dialogue with the MTR uh, about what is happening with railways in the future of Hong Kong? What's a good idea? And what's a bad idea when they're trying to figure out where they should be putting new lines, what communities they should be servicing, how they're building the stations? I mean, is there, is there other things that we can learn from history that can inform our future? I think it would be pretty hard for us to tell so much for the, for the MTR about like, the future. But then for us as the uh, uh, social media page, we do emphasize like the history of it and see how we can conserve the history. So we tell them, huh, well, what is good to show uh, to the public that uh, is anything special about the railway in Hong Kong and things like that. So we try to conserve the history in this way and see how to bring the history of the railway in Hong Kong in an interesting way to the public. Mm. Of of all the trains that have come out of Hong Kong, what would you say um, is your favourite and, and, and why? Well, I would say the MLR train that got retired and uh, displayed in the Wan Chai waterfront is quite an interesting one because like, um, it somehow retained the original transfer seat uh, on both ends of the train carriage. So it was once the yellow header train, as you know, the, the very original electric mm. train on the Israel line. So mm-hmm. like it was designated for urban surface, suburban surface, but now is renovated to meet demands from the urban development. And for railway enthusiasts, it was quite special because not only you can hear it's now noise from the motors, you could actually feel the vibration of the motors inside the train. And you, you could even smell the burning smell from the brakes <laughs> after going through the Beacon Hills tunnel. So like you, not only you can see it, you can smell it and you can hear it. <laughs> 
Has, is there, do you have a sense of how trains have shaped our identity? I mean, if you go to the Hong Kong Heritage Museum, they have this fantastic display. Uh, the, I think it's called the uh, Hong Kong 60 Plus, where they look at radio, right, spoken and music. They look at music in Hong Kong, uh, film, television, yeah. uh, magazines, like <clears throat> things that formed the modern Hong Kong identity. Um, but I come from Canada, and in Canada, trains are considered something that help us to forge a national identity. There's a you know, long history behind that uh, that we don't have time to get into right now. But do trains play that same role? Did they have a role in transforming Hong Kong and how we, you know, what we think Hong Kong is you know, once, once the rail lines were introduced for, uh, for mass transit? I do hope so, but then I doubt it because, I don't know, like, it, it, it did shape the, the, the history of Hong Kong, like, as I've mentioned, like the East Rail, it was once a rural line, but now it's become like a metro line. So it, it, it did play a large role in Hong Kong's development. But I, I doubt if most people see uh, this, the development of trains and regarding the Hong Kong's history. I, I do hope that it will become a big part of history to, the, to be displayed. Because once the government decided they were going to move people out to Sha Tin and develop the new territories, I mean, that doesn't happen without trains, does it? I mean, there's no way they were exactly. They have to yeah. upgrade. They have to upgrade the East Rail to to meet the demand. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, it it really changed the physical landscape where people lived. How they, th- you know, Hong Kong used to be Hong Kong Island and Kowloon, but I mean, with that, you know, with the advent of the trains and the new high and the new highway systems and other transport, you know, they were able to expand people's concept of what Hong Kong was. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, is that is that something that you you guys address, or you kind of move and say, listen? This is something. This is how we understand who we are as Hong Kongers through uh, the development of the railways. It's just as important as the magazines, the uh, you know, the TV, the film, these types of things. <laughs> would you would you put it on par with that? Yeah, of course. We do research about that. Like, there's always a bit of history that is unknown to the public, so we try to get more and more history about that and try to show the public, huh? Uh, Hong Kong railway is interesting. Okay, um, I know we've got a new train display out at Tsungkwano uh, School. Uh, there's the museum in Taipo. I mean, uh, can you say a little bit about those and why people should go check them out? Oh, first of, uh, of course, I, I don't think we can see the the train in Tsungkwano, but yeah, there's the one in Wan Chai, but. Um, there's also the museum in Taipo, and then actually there's also an MTR gallery in Kowloon Station where you can reserve a space, at, reserve a space, and then you can go there and uh, see the development of MTR. And then, yeah, they show part of the history of Hong Kong railways, but at least you know what's going on about and what's the history of railways in Hong Kong. If I go to the and museum, think, how long should I plan to spend there just to help people plan their day? Like, is it an hour visit? Is it a four-hour visit? How An long? hour or two because the, the, the museum isn't large. Okay. At least you have a brief idea of the history. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, well, uh, good. We can tell people they should head out to the museum if they're interested in Hong Kong's railway history. Uh, head out to Tai Po. And thank you very much for joining us on the show today. This has been Dennis Ho, the founder of Peanut Creations, uh, a group that documents Hong Kong's railway history. We're going to be back on the airwaves with Mike Rouse and Jenny Lamb on Monday. Thank you very much, Rainbow, for joining for being on the show today. Thank you. All right. I'd also like to thank our producer, Raphael Blett, and audio engineer, James Lung. Thank you very much to everybody for listening. This has been Backchat. Sir.